Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASMEGAN. I'm Tamara Hajat. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Peter Liu. Hello, hello. How's it going? Good, good. Are you enjoying your summer? I am, yes. It's crazy that it's almost over. I know. It's kind of depressing, but so, okay. What are you excited about doing before the end of this summer? So I bought roller skates and roller blades. So both? Both? Why? why, So why both? (laughs) Because I didn't know which one I would like more. Oh, are you going to return one? (laughs) I think I'm going to keep them both because like the roller blades I'm going to do on, I have a trail in my backyard. Uh It's a very long trail. So I think I'm going to do those, like I'm going to do roller blades on the trail and then roller skates i'm probably gonna go to a roller skate ring wow. and start wait so like skating. have you roller skated or roller bladed in the past no what <laughs> oh my so god! i bought protective gear because i do want to continue to scope wow um, but i've done some ice skating so okay some okay. balance yeah and i was thinking of getting like the hiking sticks what <laughs> Like to use while you're rollerblading or skating? Oh, man. I don't think... So I can have like support instead of falling on the ground. I would have something to catch me. But I bought the wrist guards. That's the most important thing. Wow. Wow, that is... On one hand, that is like so impressive. I feel like you've started so many new hobbies as an adult. I did. That's amazing. I have like flashback. I feel like I rollerbladed when I was like... Five, but I have not. <laughs> you know what's next? What? Skateboarding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wow, that is crazy. Like I, 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 I will admit, I think so. I used to rollerblade a lot when I was like a little kid, but uh-huh. I'm too scared of falling now, and I'm like too self conscious to wear protective equipment. You know why? I, mean, I don't know. I, I just like. You I mean, are super cool brave. Protective. That <laughs> is cool protective equipment. Like you can buy like a cool helmet and cool elbow and <laughs> uh, knee protectors and cool like. And in reality, wrist. like my knees are hurting. Like I feel like I would like break something, you know, and that is. But like why roller skates? I feel like that is not. I don't know. I don't know. I think they're awesome. And then I bought the white ones so I can like paint on them what make them my own (laughs) (laughs) oh my god like what would you paint on them like tamara rules or like (laughs) (laughs) what and bedazzle them (laughs) yeah oh my god this is incredible like i I have only respect for you. This is like, yeah, you are. I'll keep you updated if yes. I break my wrist and can't scope anymore. Hey, you got your wrist guards. I, I do think wrist I guards do. are clutch. Like you, you need wrist guards. Yes, I feel like the hiking poles are not gonna. Of- the hiking poles are not gonna support your weight if you like fall. You know what I mean? It's almost better to have uh, just use your wrists. Based really? on uh, you I know, mean, it's like, twenty five like years ago to, when I was rollerblading. To balance. I don't know. <laughs> I would Google that to see if someone has tried that before. I don't, I don't think that's going to work. Wow. What are you excited about? I mean, nothing's going to compare to that. 
Well, one thing that I'm excited about is uh, in a couple of weeks, we have a uh, medical school reunion, like my oh, wow. group of guy friends. So we're all going to California. Awesome. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Where did you do medical school? Northwestern in Chicago. Nice. So now we're like all over the country doing all different specialties. And the last time we got together was obviously before the pandemic. They all came to Columbus, actually, and we like really? just uh, sat around the pool and drank for like uh, 72 hours straight. It was awesome. Cool. Is there a reunion in Chicago or California? Oh, no, it's not official. It's just us as a group. A couple of my friends live in Orange County, so we're going to head over there. And awesome. we have uh, no plans. I think we're just going to sit around at his house. And uh, That's pretty awesome. That's pretty It's going to be cool. awesome. Cannot wait. Yeah. But it's not and the then- same as rollerblading. You know what I mean? I feel like we should rollerblade during this reunion. <laughs> yes, do it. Oh, my God. Rollerblading, Orange County? That is amazing. Yeah. I don't know. On the beach? No. I think it's not. I feel like six old. We're not that old, but six dudes on rollerblades. It's just not. I don't know. I don't think we're going to do that. <laughs> definitely do something fun all right we should probably talk about our episode do we have any announcements so oh yeah we do yes yeah so this is gonna be a part of the pete's gi chat right september 1st we have the one and only dr ben gold who is gonna join us for the chat our topic for this episode is choosing a mentor. So today we have Dr. Vince Mukata, who is going to talk to us about how to choose a mentor. And then during the Pete's GI chat, Dr. Ben Gold is going to answer questions and be sure to join. Yeah. It's going to be so much fun. I can't wait to see what he says. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. Because I feel like it's not only choosing a mentor, but how to be a good mentor. You know what I mean? Right. uh, Because it's interesting as we, I feel like Pretty much at every stage, we are still mentees, but we're also starting to mentor other people. So yeah, I can't wait to hear about that. Dr. Mikata, for those who don't know him, he is a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, one of Tamara's colleagues. He's mm-hmm. medical director of the Lumen Inpatient Unit. He's also a professor at the University of Cincinnati School of Medicine, and he is also the current chair of the Public Education Committee. He's amazing. He yeah, wears a he lot is of amazing. hats, and he's a great mentor. I think of him as one of my mentors, and he is such a great woman's advocate. So hmm. I really great. enjoy working with him. Yeah, yeah. Today we'll talk to him. <laughs> I was going to say on to the show. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. On to, on the, to show. the show. <laughs> All right. That's pretty good. Welcome, Dr. Mukata. Thank you for joining us today. We're excited to have you. And just to get to know you a little bit more, in one sentence, how would you describe yourself? Right. How do you get everything into one sentence? I would say I am a dad and husband. Of, I have an amazing wife and two lovely daughters. We have a new dog. I am wow. a GI doc that takes care of kids with feeding disorders and kids that live at the intersection between allergy and GI. And I struggle mightily, sometimes successfully with biting off my inner Roy Kent. That's like the internal monologue in my head. Awesome. <laughs> inner Roy yeah, Kent. In- oh, yeah. <laughs> He's like my spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yes. He said he had a new dog. We do have a new dog and you will, you have yet to see in the neighborhood because she is very, she's a rescue dog and she is 
very tied to her space, which does not include the great outdoors except our backyard. I feel yeah. like that's like me too. I just stay at home. Dude, yeah. That's not yeah. I mean, I, the question though is whether you sit underneath trees and bark at <laughs> That's what she does. She protects us from this hawk that just circles around our house. Yeah. It's very strange. The hawk has no idea. <laughs> so I don't, I don't necessarily know. do that, but I mean, that's a very noble uh, instinct. It's very funny. She runs out there and she barks at it and then it eventually leaves and then she looks very proud and she sits underneath the tree. <sighs> I love it. It's, it's very she strange. thinks that she's protecting you from the hawk. <laughs> Some, I don't, you haven't figured out what is so upsetting about this hawk. Yeah. yeah. It drives her crazy. Dogs yeah. are the best. I don't know if you we sit don't... under the tree and bark, Peter. <laughs> I stay indoors and I bark. So, yeah. yeah. No, I do not do that. Just for the record. All right. Moving on to our second question. The yeah. second question all right. Tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you've read, listened to, or watched recently that you would recommend to us in our audience. I'll throw in the same plug as Danny Mallon for Ted Lasso. Mm -hmm. I am a total NPR geek. I just listened to two things that are really interesting. One was the Freakonomics thing about the Peter Principle, which is this idea of if Peter Principle is like, it's a somewhat tongue-in-cheek thing, but the idea is the simplest way of explain, explaining it is people get promoted to the level of their incompetence. So like you keep moving people to become managers, maybe shouldn't be managers. The best salesman may not be the best manager, which I just find really interesting. And I want to worry about in my own life, am I getting promoted to a level of incompetence kind of thing? And then like podcast series, I just listened to something at the New York Times, a serial did together called the, the Trojan Horse Diaries, huh. which is about this whole episode. And Fascinating. Actually, it's the midi part thing about this episode that happened in Britain in 2014. Of this, it's worth listening to. I'll save you the synopsis, but Google Trojan Horse letter, and then you'll see it. I mean, you'll see a bunch of stuff like the podcast, but it's really well done. So, a couple questions. So, why is it called mm -hmm. the Peter Principle? I mean, there is a. It was an economist, actually. I think his name was Lawrence Peter. Okay. All right. 60s or 70s. There's actually a book. Uh, feel better. Okay. Oh, not after you, Peter. No, I'm sure it was not. <laughs> oh, maybe, yeah. but it's like maybe like Peters in general are just you know, incompetent. Thought about that. But okay, just want to clarify. And then, so the second one, so the Trojan Horse Letter, what's like the event? Like what happened that was. So what happened was in Birmingham public schools in England in 2000, whatever, 14 or so, the Birmingham public schools had a very high proportion of Muslim students for immigrants from Bangladesh and Pakistan and places. Traditionally, very poor performing schools were written off, written as an interesting kind of local control of public schools. And there is, you can mix some religion into things, into public schools, which is a little bit obviously here for better or worse. They had local takeover of some of these schools. And there was a letter that was sent anonymously to the Birmingham City Council that said, Basically, this is worrisome that they're, that this is, they're promoting Islamic extremism. And the thing that to also note is that the burning at these schools had gone from being the absolute worst, being extremely high achieving schools in the context of all of this. It caused like, a huge outcry, actually. And it, Interesting. And the number of educators were banned for life from education. It was a huge I thing. Am. The premise of the podcast is that no one actually ever asked the question, like, wrote the letter. Because wow. there's problems with the letter itself is a little problematic, a lot problematic. And so it, the whole thing is exploring it. They have a theory on who wrote it. It's interesting. There's a lot of, there's a lot of chatter online about it. Some of the newspapers that they quoted have responded and said, no, we didn't get this wrong. Cause they basically said, this is an abdication of responsibility of everyone. Everyone used this. 
mm-hmm. and forgot about the schools and the people involved. So, wow. Yeah, that, very interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's very well done. I'll have to check it out. So going into our topic today, we're going to talk about mentorship. And actually, you came to us and suggested that topic because I think you have a great passion for mentorship, right? You had you mentioned to me that you have you've had good mentors in your life and you wanted to talk about this. And I personally consider you as one of my mentors and I felt comfortable coming and talking to you about some topics or some things that I've faced at work. So I think you're a great person to talk about this topic. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in talking about mentorship and tell us about your journey, about how you found your mentors and how you became one? So to be honest, the thought about talking about mentorship was I had listened to Danny's podcast to you guys about education and sort of the journey of becoming an educator and skills building and all of that. And it occurred to me that's not something that we talk about with mentorship, but it is, it's very much the same process, right? It's a, it's a different form of education, but it's not something we have a lot of formal training in. And as you said, I've been exceptionally lucky to have amazing mentorship through my career. It came up again this year by Glenn Ferruto, my primary mentor when I was at Denver, just won the Schwachman Award. Mike Narthol wow. was my clinical mentor at Denver. He won the Distinguished Service Award two years ago. Neil Alaika was my division chief and mentor at, at Brown. He won the Distinguished Service Award. But I've just been really lucky with some amazing people. Phil Putnam here has been amazing from the time I was a med student through now as an attending 20 years later. And we all have those people. And it's really important to acknowledge that. But also that gives you that sort of responsibility to try to do the same thing. But then I think back as when you make that transition from fellow to, to faculty and initially still really have a lot to offer other than you can tell people like, this is what that transition looks like. This is what I know. I know about what it'd like to start out as a first year attending and then what that transition looks like. And then five or six years later, you can say, this is what it looks like as you're thinking about promotion, as you're thinking about navigating decision-making on what your career is going to look like and your balance of research and academics and administration and all that. And over time that, that, that builds. But I think I've been lucky here that I've had, we've got a number of people who've been interested in the things that I'm interested in. It's built that ability to do some of the things that people did for me. So when I was at Denver, Glenn was instrumental in modeling it, saying, work in my lab, let's do research projects. The also to say, hey, oh, you're interested in doing something similar to what I'm doing. Let me teach you what it looks like to build a new center. Let me show you how you get involved in clinical research. Let me make sure that you go to lab meetings with other labs so that you understand how to speak the language and bringing people into all aspects of what we do, really. I think that's been the goal here is as I've started to be able to do some of those things and have more than varied responsibilities, it's trying to bring people along. And I think, I hope that what we do now or what I do now is a lot better than what it was when I first started spotlight around things. And I hope that five years from now, it will continue to be better. Yeah, that's great. I think one thing you mentioned is, for example, Dr. Furuta, he was also your kind of research mentor. And I think a lot of people have this idea that, oh yeah, the person I do research with, that's my mentor. But obviously that's not really the case. There's so much more to being a mentor. But before kind of moving on, how would you define mentorship? What does that mean compared to a friend or a colleague or something like that. And obviously having the right mentor or mentors is one of the key things to success in this field that we all work in. But 
Why is it important to have the right mentor, especially for career development and advancement? One thing is just something that I probably said there, which a lot of us have a primary mentor, but I don't think any of us can or should or does have just one mentor. And Glenn has been the person that I go to for kind of all purpose, everything, and has been for the whole time I've known that. But certainly I still go back to some of those other folks and I certainly will ask Neil for career advice. I certainly will go back and call Mike Narkowitz to ask him for advice on patients for years now. In terms of finding that center, trying to figure out how to pick the person, things to look for, something. Again, I've been lucky for, if you know those people, it's a pretty diverse group of personalities that we're talking about there. So I think it's, but the people live that very comfortable talking with. So you just have to have that ability to know that this person is something you can speak to openly. Your question about kind of friends versus what your mentor is, your mentor needs to be somebody with more experience, right? It's also important to have a peer support group and to be a peer supporter, but I think you need to have somebody who's a little bit ahead of you at least who thinks that these are the things that, that I had to do. And this is what's important. As you get asked to do things in your career, it's really nice to be able to have somebody be call and say, do you think this makes sense? Is this something I should make? Is this a job I should consider? Is this a, a role I should consider? And it seems useful to get that advice from people at your level, but it also is helpful to, to hear it from somebody who's done it before. One other thing like you had mentioned about Dr. Furuta is also he went out of his way to invest in you as well and show you how to do things. So it's like someone who you can ask questions to, but also really goes out of their way to support you and help guide you. One thing I would say, so my dad is a PhD. So I grew up with his graduate students and PhD students and postdocs coming to our house and going to parties or whatever. So I had that vision. I know that he knows that outside of work. I know that they'll call him for advice down the road. I know that he'll call them to do things later on. And so that, again, with, with Glenn, especially that was something that clicked. You know, Glenn is, my parents have been to Glenn's house or family, friends as well. He was at my wedding. So that's great. And in an ideal world for someone like me, that's perfect. It doesn't have to be that way. I think there's lots of people with mentorship relationships that are strictly in the work world. But knowing that person is somebody that you can call, not just when things are going well, but also, hey, I'm struggling. I need someone to help me work through this. That's really important. So what I'm hearing is try to find a lifelong mentor that would try to mentor you throughout your different stages of career. Is that correct? I think so. It's hard when you're starting out to know, is this person going to be that person? But I think it is helpful to know that they have gone through things that you think you're going to do. You know, how do you pick a mentor? Sometimes the mentor picks you, right? Or sometimes right. circumstances happen. But that idea of, is this person doing something that I want to do? Is this somebody I look up to? But the answer is yes, and that's probably someone that you want to work with. The answer is no, and that's okay. There's lots of people who do stuff that I just don't want to do that job. It's not helpful in my life. It's probably not the right mentor for me. It might be for somebody else. So asking in more detail about that, it's challenging to find a mentor, especially if you're moving from one institution to another. If you're a medical student or you're a resident, a fellow, even faculty, I moved from one institution to another and you don't know the people, you don't know their personalities, you don't know if they're going to be good mentors, good sponsors. What guidance would you give somebody that's looking for a mentor? And how would they find the person that's the right mentor for them? It's using the resources that you have, right? So it's just, thankfully, PHGI is a small enough community that we, people know each other. And so even smart you coming from UConn, you and Amy Anderson have done fellow committee together. And so yeah. you came here, Annie was one of my mentees. 
And he said, hey, tomorrow's coming. You're going to love her. She's great. We've been working together for a couple of years. You know, that's helpful. And I think yeah. you knowing Annie and then asking her, like, well, tell me who I'm about to join. That's really useful. So that's probably step one. Step two is maintaining your mentorship relationships with the people that you're used to work with and using that as a reference. You just same thing, right? Certainly Glenn and Neil and Mike know people here and new people at other places. But then it can help make introductions and also tell me, hey, maybe this is the person you want to talk to. They're doing something really interesting. I think that is really helpful once you get to a place or if you someone there, asking them for advice and getting the lay of the land as you go is really useful. But definitely make use of the people that you know and just Remember that as advice to trainees and everybody else who's interviewing, these are people you probably interview with some of us at some point along the way. Keep those relationships up. Keep those people in mind. As you know, people move, you may come back to a place. Kind of like what you mentioned, it doesn't have to be someone from the same institution, especially if you have a relationship that's already built. You should continue to invest in that because it is a small community. And I would say sometimes it's even helpful to have someone who's not at your institution, who has an outside perspective, be that mentor for you. I think a little bit of a tougher question. Mentorship is not for everyone. We were talking about how do we choose? How do we find the right person? And there definitely are people who we know are great clinicians. They're brilliant. Maybe they're great researchers, but maybe are not the best mentor. How can someone improve in being a mentor? Some people are... Maybe better suited. I've already ate more of a passion for them than it is for others. Again, I brought up this whole Peter Principle idea that there are some people who are, one of the things they talked about is that in the tech world, there's this term IC or independent contributor or something, which is like a way of people being promoted without becoming a manager, which is an acknowledgement that you can and should be promoted for your amazing technical skill without necessarily having to manage people or necessarily impose it yourself on other people. Exactly. You said there are lots of people who are great at what they do and they are people that you should go to for specific thing, but they don't have the bandwidth or the interest or the ability to be a mentor in that way. And sometimes it's, Hey, I had a really weird career path to get here. I don't think anyone else should follow what I did, frankly, or whatever it might be. So some of that is assessing out what makes, what feels right to you. I think we all can figure out who the people are that we're going to go to for specific questions as opposed to you're the person I value your insight into this, or I think you have something you can contribute to, to this discussion. But also be aware that sometimes the people that have those reputations, if you pick and choose what you're asking them, they can still be like an excellent clinical mentor or an excellent research mentor. And they may not be able to give you any advice that's useful at all about your career path yeah. because it's not what they did, but you can still work with them productively and get in a useful career guidance in that specific path. And then just kind of seeing it from the perspective of that person who may not have the experience or feel like they're a great mentor, maybe like someone like me a little bit earlier in their career. I want to be a great mentor. Like I really, I do find that relationship rewarding but how can I get better at it? Do you have any advice for someone like who, like me who doesn't feel like they're necessarily that ideal mentor yet? I think it's interesting that you're going to grow into, it's just like being a parent. It's just like being a doctor. There's things that we all did when we started out. To, wow, I wish I could take that one back. And that's okay. But I think sometimes it's reflecting back on it. It's been a good mentor to me. What did I take from this? What was valuable from this relationship? It was, it's just that this person was always a dozer to me at all times. They gave me their cell phone number. Is it, I, I really needed some, when I sent them a, a manuscript to review, 
They really took the time to look at it and they gave me useful corrections. It's all of those things. And some of this, like you said, we may not have experience to do all of those things yet, but you can do some of it. And so you, you focus on the things that you can do in it. And sometimes it's saying, let me help you with this. And also let me introduce you to Dr. So-and-so who I think is going to be the person you should talk to about that career piece, or let me hook up with my mentor and ask him if he give you a call to talk through those career choices. That kind of thing I think can be helpful. And it's just acknowledging that you have, I want to do this. I want to get better at it. I can't do it all. And somebody may be better at it than me and getting feedback to him. Yeah. So I'm a mentor for one of the residents. And one thing that I've learned, I think mentees teach us as well. And one thing I've learned is that guide them in making the decision without influencing it and asking the questions out loud to them and having them answer that question. So for example, if they're confused about which direction they want to go, say, what are your pros and cons and what do you think is going to benefit for you in Look at yourself in 10 years. If you are in this field, will you be happy in this field? But you mentioned something really important about a mentor connecting you with other people. And there's some publications out there about a mentor, but also a sponsor. And I think that came from the marketing business world and bled into a little bit into the healthcare world. So can you tell us a little bit more about what being a mentor means, what being a sponsor means, and is it important to have both? So let me start with a couple of caveats. And also, let me also endorse one thing that you said that you, junior faculty person, you're mentoring one of the residents. I think that's a great opportunity. Most med schools, most residency programs have mentorship programs. They're all looking for people, right? They want faculty to sign up and say, I want to mentor a student, a resident, whatever it might be. That's a great way to learn. And kudos for doing that. And it's something for people to look for. So I will be 100% honest that the whole sponsorship versus mentorship thing until you guys had sent me the articles. I'm not sure that I'd ever heard the truth laid out that way. It does make sense. So I read what you said and, and did a little thinking myself, but my understanding of difference between sponsorship and mentorship at a simpleton's view of it is the mentor is your one-on-one. I go to you for advice. I go to you for guidance. I go to you bounce ideas off of. That person can also serve as a sponsor in the sense that what a sponsor is really doing is looking out for and recognizing talent and promoting that talent in the sense of at a hospital, it's the chief of staff who has seen you do something, seen you present something, whatever it might be, and thought, oh, that's a person that I should put on this committee. And the reason to put them on this committee is I know that other people are on that committee that are important. And this will then help them springboard to the next thing. You know, it may be your division chief who you have a good relationship with, but it's not necessarily a primary mentor that says, hey, I put you in for this leadership development course, or this program. But again, it's because they're recognizing something or then looking to promote something that they see. But that's a little bit different. And I think that's the idea. They're sponsoring you, right? They're putting you into a position or they're making people be aware of you. And again, a mentor can't do that. But depending on where your mentor is in their career and in the institution, that may or may not be all they could do. A sponsor, almost by definition, is somebody significantly higher than you on the food chain. 
And in my mind, I think a sponsor is also somebody, for example, for fellows that are looking for jobs, their mentor can also be their sponsor, or they can have a sponsor where they promote them and they say, oh, I have a very excellent candidate for you. This is a great Mm -hmm. person. I've worked with them on this projects or, for example, for junior faculties that are looking to engage in international or national talks or being connected in certain committees. I think I agree having a sponsor and a mentor, both either a mentor that's also a sponsor or a sponsor that's separate from a mentor is very important for career development. My thought process about this is that a mentor is somebody that you also you seek out, right? You're finding your person built this relationship, they're going to continue to work with you forever. If you think about it as if I had to get a letter of recommendation, my mentor could write a really good letter of recommendation for me. They know me, they know what I've done over the years. Somebody who is more of a sponsor who I don't necessarily have that same relationship with, they are going to write more what my CV says. And maybe some limited, this is what I know about him or her, they, they caught our attention doing this project and they did a really good job, but it, it's not quite the degree of personal that you get with. I've known him. I've seen him from the time that he was a fellow, the this, the this, and yeah, his career best has gone this way. It's just both are really valued. Right. To a certain degree, sponsorship happens because you've built yourself up to earn it a little bit. And people that are looking to be sponsors, they have their goals for what they're doing. So they want to promote younger people. They want to promote diversity. They want to promote in medicine, women tools and into leadership roles. So there's an agenda there as well. And so it's understanding what you do aligns with what the sponsor is trying to do as well. As you mentioned, I feel like the term sponsorship in like a this kind of setting to me is also a newer idea. I feel like a few years ago, especially once so my wife is a surgeon in like a male dominated field, that's where I first heard the term about how women can find mentors, mm-hmm. but it's much harder to find a sponsor than maybe for a male counterpart. And at first I didn't really get that, but I can see how my mentor is a Carlo Di Lorenzo, our chief. And, uh, you know, we go to happy hour. It's a lot easier for us to hang out and build like the, a little bit of a different relationship than just a strict mentorship relationship. And a lot of this conversation about sponsorship is really the context of this inequality between men and women in academic medicine. And so there's been some of the articles that we'll put in our show notes that tomorrow sent out talk about how sponsorship is maybe a key to trying to get women to some of the more higher positions within our field. And that's going to take men to also support women Mm -hmm. to make that happen. How do you feel like a male mentor or sponsor can help a female, like a woman mentee, advance their career, get promotions, or become a leader in the field? Are there things that are different that we have to do compared to a male? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's, I think, yes, but I think it's true. It's Part of it is recognizing that we're individuals, yeah. right? So women versus men may have some different challenges. And think either something you guys sent me or something I looked up recently said, think about the sponsorship versus mentorship thing is that there's some data that people sponsor people that look and are like them. It's just a yeah. comfort or whatever. So you have to consciously go beyond that. It's back to what I was saying. Like sometimes when you're a sponsor, you have a goal and then your goal might be, I want to increase representation for underrepresented minorities or women or whatever it might be. So there is a little bit of a conscious thing there. Some of this in terms of being a mentor or a sponsor is trying to learn more about the person as an individual, right? Because if you're the pressures facing a young faculty member with a young family, 
or someone who has a sick parent that they take care of is different and it may not be completely apparent. And so a mentor or a sponsor that takes the time to figure that out and still tries to promote that person and works with them. Like that's really yeah. where I think it's got to be really important. And like we have to put the effort in knowing that, hey, if I should, probably shouldn't put them forward for this position because that doesn't make sense. You know, I can talk to them about it, but it's okay for people to say no or to help them say, oh, that's really not the right thing for you to do right now. It doesn't make sense in your life or it doesn't make sense for your career. I 100% agree with you. I think we, we need to recognize that there are some structural things that we need to overcome and to think about that. But again, I think it's meeting people where they are. There, there are definitely unique challenges. My mom was a, it was an academic physician. My dad is a PhD. The challenges of being two working parents. I had a little bit atypical background in the sense that my mother was actually made more money. And she, because my father had a little bit more flexibility with his academic schedule. They divided up cooking and he did a lot of the child rearing too. So, you know, people looking from the outside might have thought that this is what the challenges are. And it really, what the challenges were real is different than what you might think. That's part of the, the goal to kind of meet somebody and really look about that as a person. I agree. And just to say a few things about why I thought you were, because I put this question and it's kind of a challenging question for a male to answer it for a female. But in, in a couple of instances, I felt that I was able to go to you and you were one of the sponsors and advocates for female physicians. I think this is very, it's a very important thing to know that if we want to help the female faculty or our female colleagues, that there are some barriers or what they say, glass ceilings that we can't overcome on our own. We need sponsors. We need mentors to help us navigate this. And some are very well qualified to do this and others don't recognize the, the amount of detail and thoughts you need to put into this to help advance a female faculty. Because I think kind of I read this in certain articles where a woman thinks that she needs to be 100% equipped and 100% great to apply for a leadership role where for her male colleague, it might not be as like 100%. So maybe I'm just on a rant here, but just saying that that yeah, yeah, that it is It is really important to have that backup from your male colleagues as sponsors, not just not only because you want somebody else to to help you, regardless if it's a male or female colleague, but it's also important to have that support from your male colleague to help advance you, at least in this climate. Yeah. But to be honest, my mother is an academic and then private practice physician. My wife is a pediatrician. My sister is an academic doc. So I grew up with this. Um, so, you know, it's not like I am in line with coaching familiarity, not because of anything inherent to us. And I also think, you know, going along with what you're saying, it's not like that we're trying to unfairly promote women. Women have worked harder to achieve what they have. It's trying to give them what their due is, you know, recognizing that the system is built against them when the people at the top are mostly male. And it does also, I think, apply to underrepresented minorities. It's not just yeah. women. Yes, exactly. You know, and I think that it, the, now that we're talking about it more in general in academic medicine, people are starting to recognize and be more intentional about some of the decisions that they make. But 
Yeah, I think it is an important thing to to think about and for leaders to recognize so they can be those sponsors and be intentional about how they support their faculty. And my hope is that some of this is with familiarity, people will get better at it, right? Smartest point, I think we hear the same thing in underrepresented minorities, right? They don't have to just be as good as their colleagues. They have to be better at everything all the time, but they will be considered. So my hope is you make the leadership more representative of what the population as a whole looks like, and it, and it becomes normalized for us all. I want to also talk about another term in mentorship. It's called board of directors, which means that you have different mentors with different roles. So can you tell us what this term actually means? And you mentioned this a little bit in the beginning, but what are the multiple benefits of having multiple mentors and how can somebody ask for multiple mentors with not offending somebody else? I think there's lots of benefits. I think it's related to that I have multiple mentors and some of it is just it lights out. Glenn or Phil, I will ask an eosinophil disease specific question or research question about as well as career or life advice. Neil Lyko, I'm not going to ask him about eosinophilic disease necessarily, but I would ask him about navigating career and academic challenges administrative roles. And Mike, I'll ask about the same kind of things or whatever else it might be. It's useful to me to have people that I can say, oh, you're not only are you not doing what I do, but you are in a different institution and have seen different systems. So I think that's helpful. Sometimes it's helpful just for someone else to tell you, hey, here, this is what we do. It's not to say that's better or worse. It's just, you know, differently. I guess I never really thought about how do you pick multiple mentors. It feels like it develops romantically. And I think you, again, you probably will have a primary person, but anyone who's a good primary mentor, we all have multiple mentors. So we should all then not be upset that someone else will go and get advice from different people. It's, again, you read about this, like presidential administrations and things. Do you want people that are competing or at least have opposing viewpoints or do you want everyone to say the same thing? Different people may want different things, but I think having a diverse set of experiences and opinions is always useful. The way that I think we all developed who our mentors are is as you work with somebody, as you feel like, oh, I feel comfortable with this person, you eventually come to them and you ask them for advice. And if the advice is helpful to you, you keep coming back. And mm-hmm. eventually you are helping to the people. This is really, this is my couple mentors. And you might, as your career goes on, you're going to find people that you didn't expect. People that have worked with outside of the division when completely unrelated things. I can't go to them about a GI specific question per se, unless it's more administrative, but I can go to them and ask them about quality improvement or how do you navigate hospital hierarchies or make improvements in, in, in a broader system. And that's really valuable. But that developed again just because when you start doing a project, you work with this person, you realize that they have skills and experience that you don't. You ask the question. It doesn't even necessarily have to be like a medical reason. Nope. You know, it could also be you just admire how this person balances their work with their family yeah. or the way they manage their time or those kinds of things. I feel like that can be just as valuable too, to have a mentor who's more like a life mentor. Life. Kind of yes. Yeah. One thing though, that obviously, as you mentioned, we are all mentees. So I mentor medical students and a couple of our fellows. And I try to explain it's a relationship. It's not a one-way thing where I'm just like telling you what to do. So there is a responsibility of a mentee to be a good mentee, but what does that mean? Like, how do you be a good mentee? It's really important. Again, it's like not a skill that you learn per se, but I think as a 
I would imagine as senior mentors would probably say one of the most rewarding things is seeing how people that we trained have developed over the years, that, that seeing that they are doing their own thing, but you can still see where the influence might have been, that I can start people on the path. As a mentor, me, I guess my advice is be open to anything. Realize that you may come into something with, this is what I think I need, or this is what I'm going to do, this is what I want. But realize that your mentor may have different life experiences, may have different experiences, exposures, things that they think that they may see in you. Be open to those things. You want to throw yourself into this as a fellow when you're doing your research years. Those are your two years to really the least other pressures at that point. Throw yourself into your projects. Throw yourself into it with whatever you have, because if you don't decide to do it long-term, it's fine. You've gained those skills. But if you come out of it with a good relationship with your research mentor, that's been on forever. For me, I don't do exactly what Glenn does, but he was always open to that and said, what is it that you want to do with your life? Let's get you there. You have a job to do in the lab and in clinical research, but that's not going to be what you necessarily do forever. So how do we equip you to go from there? So some of that was just being able to say, great, this is what I'm interested in. And if you're willing to teach me about getting the business side of this, or how do you assemble your team or what are the things that have been good or bad? Sometimes that means, Hey, I just, and then it's going to, he's going back into the hospital right now, or he's going to, he's going to a meeting now and he wants me to go with him. Yeah, I'll go with him. Cause that's how it least that. So it's, it is trying to be open to the serendipity where it comes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a couple of other things is maybe be respectful of your mentor's time. So make sure that you show up on meetings and you follow up with things that your mentor suggested you do. But another thing is be able to talk openly and honestly with your mentor about what you think your weaknesses are. Because sometimes we look at a mentor and we're like, oh, I can't tell my mentor that I'm behind on this or I'm struggling to time manage or I'm struggling to do this. And I think it's really important also to be able to be open and honest with your mentor so they can help you actually with what you're struggling with. So one thing which is hard to do is, for example, you go and you choose your mentor and you think that you're going to do this research project, but then one, two, three, six months later, you think that this is not it for you and your mentor, maybe have different thought processes, have different techniques, have different ways of thinking of things and approaching stuff. And you decide that your primary mentor, not your secondary mentor, is not the best mentor for you. So how do you break up with your mentor? <laughs> That's a good question. I've never had to do it. Uh-huh. I think this is where you need to lean on your resources, right? So if you're a fellow or a junior faculty that's where hopefully you can go to your fellowship director or your scholarship oversight committee and say, this isn't working. We've had to do this for people where it's either we need to step in and say, this just isn't, and they need to intervene for you because there, there is a power imbalance there, especially when you're training. They need to help you either to have a conversation with somebody present or to have the conversation for you and say, look, this isn't working. If it's something that's inappropriate, sometimes they have to really step in and say, no, this isn't going to happen anymore. And we're, I have to take them out of, out of the lab or out of the situation versus just want to help navigate. I think there's a communication issue here or whatever it might be that maybe it's a salvage. And I think some of that is you figuring out 
is this a salvageable situation? And what do I want to get out of this? Because sometimes it may be this research project is it's just not working for me, but this is a person that I still have enjoyed working with, or we've had a good relationship. Maybe it is. I just need to come back to them, potentially with help from somebody senior to say, we're really sp- spinning our wheels here. Should we really have a, a deep rethink? Come on. I really want to continue working with you, but this isn't going anywhere. Is there something else that we could do? Sometimes it may be, you know what? I, I just don't think this is working out. I do need to find something new, but I'd like to salvage. I really valued our time. And these are the things that I really took out of this that are useful. I hope that we can continue to have a productive relationship going forward. And, and sometimes that can work. One of the things to my, you had mentioned is as a mentee, it is really important to be able to go to the mentor and say, something's not working. Or this isn't meeting my needs and doing it early because mentors are busy and they may not realize that things are going well. And one of the things I would say for me is remembering, oh, I should get my mentees to do stuff like doing manuscript reviews, doing some other things that are besides their primary research that it might be important for that long term. Also, you coming into hey, just so you know, in case you have writing things that you need to get done, chapters, whatever, I'm totally hoping to do that. Just remind us, and then we'll actually get you involved. And again, the more stuff you're involved with, the more things you have your hands in, I think the more invested everyone is. Just echoing what you're saying, first of all, I think it's important to differentiate the research mentor breaking up versus your mentor like career. Because it's like you're saying, just because you stop working on that research project doesn't mean you have to end that relationship. Especially when our community is so small, you probably right. should not break up with anybody. Like at least <laughs> not in a bad breakup sense of the word, you know what I mean? <laughs> no so, drama. We should try to salvage that, keep that relationship that's there. Yeah. But they'll understand you need to be productive during your time. But I also like what you said about even as a fellow, there is that power imbalance, but there are people who you should be able to turn to who can help and guide you. I think the most logical person would be your program director. They're fully invested in you being academically successful to meet your scholarly work requirement or whatever. They should be your ally in that process. It's kind of to wrap up the mentorship discussions. Let's say a junior faculty or maybe even a fellow wants to get involved in mentorship. What would your advice be for where there are some opportunities for that? There's several. We talked a little bit about mentoring. You know, residency programs in medical schools, for sure, all want mentors or people to volunteer for mentorship programs. Here, there's internship mentorship program for the interns. They're med students. There's definitely ways that you contact the dean's office in the med school. They will be happy to match you up with people that would like to have somebody to go to. But I think sometimes it could be, hey, is that what I'm interested in, do I want to volunteer to be pediatricians? Do you want to volunteer to mentor a student at a high school that's interested in health professions, right? Like that could be super rewarding for people that haven't had exposure. Those are opportunities that are out there too. As you said, there's a two-way street, right? Like you're going to learn something and how you approach even your MD mentees from that high school student, right? Because they're going to just ask the question that you're fellow isn't going to feel comfortable asking because it feels weird asking if a high schooler has no idea he's going to ask it. So sometimes that might mean, or, you know what, that was a really great question. I'm not just going to wait for someone to ask me that. I'm just going to say it to my mentee, whenever it might be. I can think of a few specific examples that I take what you can from those things, but there's different levels of mentorship and there's different things that you can gain from it too. You know, avail yourself of those opportunities. I think it's the, again, the ability to mentor fellows, whether it's in research and career stuff or in life, that comes just from being there, right? They ask you a question on the words, you answer the question, 
you try to give them advice, you ask them how they're doing, you get to know them. You're being a good human. Does NASPGAN have mentorship programs? They do. Yeah. 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 Put some links in the show notes. Also, just to share a little bit going along those lines, like no matter what level you're at, there are people who look up to you. And even as a first year attending, I really was just looking for students to do some chart reviews. And then, you know, we got linked up and honestly being the mentors for now, like I have eight to nine medical students. That's been one of the most rewarding parts of my short career thus far, you know, watching them ask about career advice and now they're in residency and going to their medical school graduations. So it's no matter what level you're at, there's definitely opportunities in wherever you are. And that is ultimately, I can, I, I think for many people, that's going to be probably one of the most rewarding experiences of their career once they're looking back is all the people right. that they helped get to where they are. And as a plug for NASPGAN, in addition to any formal programs, I think just like it's a small community, it's a, an increased big design, but it feels still small. And you're going to get mentorship. Again, put yourself out there, volunteer for committees, talk to the people that you work with. You're going to meet people that will be mentors to you and that are very open to this and are open to being in contact with junior faculty and fellows take advantage of chance encounters. When I did teaching in tomorrow, I got stranded in somewhere, so Toronto, I think, with actually with the nationwide folks at the time. And so I spent two hours sitting in a lounge with John Barnard at the time, like Tom Safari, Wallace Crandall was there, and a bunch of folks that have, it's a small community. They've stayed in contact all these years, which I think is it's really great. So take advantage of those opportunities. This was a great episode. As we're wrapping up this episode, we'd like to ask you a couple more questions. Maybe looking back at your career, what was the most valuable advice you received, either from a mentor or not from a mentor? And uh, what advice would you have for our listeners? A couple things. One thing I would say that has helped me is I think about what kind of things I want to do and like choosing a specialty in various things, but it's putting yourself on a continuum. So someone told me once, like the way that they thought about picking a specialty was their comfort level with uncertainty. So if you are somebody, for instance, who's comfortable with, I need to know a little bit, but a huge amount. And it's okay with me that I'm not the expert on any one thing. You are a perfect general pediatrician, general insurance, whatever it might be. If you are that person that that, is, that makes you super nervous and you just need to know everything about one little thing, you are a specialist. And I look at my wife and I, she's a general pediatrician and I'm not, and we are on those two into that spectrum. The other piece is just, again, it's that serendipity piece. It's the willingness to realize that things happen for a reason and trust in that, that you can get something useful out of anything that happens. My short, quick saga. So the reason I end up doing what I'm doing, completely random, 100% random from start to finish. So Went to men's school thinking I was going to be an internist. Then decided I was going to be a neurologist for a brief period of time. Did pediatrics rotation. Realized I was suddenly picturing myself working with kids. Happened to have John Bukabalos was my evening general pediatrics preceptor for three weeks. Wow. I think because he had kids in college and it was moonlighting, honestly. Oh. Uh, and <laughs> he and I happened to hit it off. And he said, just promise me that you're going to do peds, do a month with us next year, the fourth year. Great. So I did that. Happened to have Phil, find him as my ward attending. He and I stayed in contact. I went off to residency, went to Denver. I was going to be a transplant hepatologist, started in the transplant, basic science transplant lab. And my mentor ended up taking a job somewhere else and leaving quickly after I started. 
and Glenn was in the process of coming over at his, one of his longtime collaborators who's already in Colorado and said, Hey, come to my lab. Glenn's going to sign. I know he will. I'll teach you some mucosal ideology. And then when he signs, he'll start mentioning you for a distance and it's going to be great. And suddenly now I'm doing eosinophilic esophagitis. Glenn and I hit it off. And that's how I ended up being down this path. But then again, it's that I had worked with Phil 20 years ago. We'd stayed in contact. He knew I was working with Glenn. When an opportunity came open here, he went to Edge Cohen at the time and said, hey, Bits is doing this. He's from Cincinnati. Why don't you just give him a call? And here we are. It's just take all of those little opportunities and those career changes that you think at the moment, it was somewhat traumatic to be like, I thought I had this path all laid out. And here we are. Yeah. It's been a good ride. So be open to, be uh, open. yeah, to other options and possibilities. And I'm assuming you're happy right now, right? Man. The career <laughs> Actually, he's still like a closet transplant hepatologist, which no, I'm just kidding. But yeah, I think people always say it's not, you don't have to have it figured out from day one. You develop that passion and it's like yeah. trusting in your mentors who may know something about you that you don't know to help guide you. But that's, that's, yeah. in, that's incredible. I think part of like the awesome thing about this podcast is hearing some of those stories because we'll never hear that like in a lecture, for example, just knowing that people don't always like know exactly what they're going to do from the time they're born and just take the straight path there. So that's really cool to hear. Thank you so much for joining us. Any final words for our listeners? Yes, lots of final words, I guess, <laughs> but I don't know anything. It's all that pithy. Um, as far as mentorship goes, I think it it is figuring out for me, it's figuring out like who are the people that I could see myself being, like who, or at least some parts of that. And then going and talking to them and seeing if they're willing to reciprocate that and help you. And that's how you find your group. And I hope you all find mentors as good as that. This was a great episode. Thanks for joining us. Yep, We'd like to have you much. again, maybe sometime yeah. later. Yes, thank you again. That was an awesome discussion. Thanks so much to Dr. Mikado for joining us. It was like so good to hear his insight as a mentor who many of like my co-hosts and also even our colleagues here, someone who people look up to explain yeah. kind of his philosophy on mentorship. And make sure you get your CME. That's right. So if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sounds and on Facebook at PediatricGI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us if you did one or all of the three things. One, tell one person, two or three or four or any person about this podcast to leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast podcast three on our best page there is a link to support the show by making a donation to the naspican foundation you can also get there through www.naspican.org the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the naspican foundation is doing including supporting pediatric gi research and public educational programs and as always the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thank you Thank all for you listening. Thank you all for listening. Bye. Bye.